Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. After the Democratic Convention in New York City in 1992, which nominated Bill Clinton for president, Richard M. Alston, who was then the chairman of the Economics Department at Weber State University in Ogden, Utah, sent a political survey questionnaire to the delegates of the Democratic Convention. His survey concerned the perceptions of convention delegates regarding economic issues in the United States. As a delegate to that convention, I was sent one of his surveys and decided to ask Professor Alston for an interview. In this interview, we discuss the survey, what information he hoped to ascertain with it, as well as the role of economists in academic institutions in America. This program was originally broadcast in November of 1992, when Radio Curious was called Government Politics and Ideas. Dr. Richard M. Alston, welcome to Government Politics and Ideas. Thank you, Barry. I'm pleased to be with you. I'd like to begin our discussion this evening about... uh, what you see the role in our American society in the 1990s to be for economists such as yourself, uh, those in an academic setting? Okay, that's an interesting question. Of course, it's one that uh, we have to answer for ourselves all the time. We uh, academic economists play a number of roles. Um, First and foremost, I think we're teachers, and it's uh, an important responsibility that we teach not only our students, but uh, the public at large, the nature of a free enterprise economy, um, how it contrasts with alternative systems such as centrally controlled systems of the former Soviet Union and uh, uh, primitive systems in in third world countries and developing countries. And so our primary role, I think, is to help people understand the complexity of getting goods produced and distributed and um, the rewards and punishments that go with choices that people make in a market economy. That's our role as academic economists, and we play that role both in the newspapers and in the classroom. Another role that we play is as economic analysts. As analysts, um, economists attempt to divorce themselves from their personal views or their ideologies, religion, or background, and come into a problem, whether it be um, the impact of foreign trade restrictions or taxes and budget policies or local community development efforts, and ask specific questions about what assumptions are being made by the um, decision makers in these situations, who's going to bear the benefit, who's going to pay the cost, um, whether or not the, the rationale is is legitimate, does it back up the proposals, that sort of thing. So we play the role of analyst and try to keep our own personal values out, just serve as number crunchers and statisticians, if you will. Well, let me ask you then, in terms of the survey that uh, you sent to uh, me and others at random who were delegates to both the Democratic National Convention and the Republican Convention, uh, what was the purpose of that survey? What were you trying to elicit? The purpose of the survey um, was dictated by, by a previous survey that we did. Um, back in 1975, one of our co-authors had um, responded to the claim that you could, you could lie all the economists in the world to 
end to end and they'd never reach a conclusion, kind of an old uh, saw about economists not agreeing with one another. And that uh, uh, this, this is popularized in the press, and I think most people have heard that, that kind of story. In 1975, James Curl and his co-authors um, did a survey of economists on two types of questions. One set had to do with the functioning of what we call the microeconomy. That is, how do firms make business decisions? How do they make pricing decisions? How do resources get allocated in local and regional markets? And another set of questions that had to do with how the macroeconomy works, things like unemployment and inflation and the government deficit and trade balances. What they found in 1975 was that there was substantially more agreement among economists than the popular press and the jokes would suggest. Um, Fifteen years later, I was writing a textbook, and my co-author and I had different um, ideologies, which is why we were brought together to try to write a balanced textbook. And we kept arguing about what the general consensus among economists was. I, I suggested it was one thing, and he suggested it was another. And I said, why don't we go find out? So we took the survey questions that were written in 1975, redesigned about uh, 25% of them because they'd been outdated or they referred to administrations, rewrote those questions and sent them out again to the population of economists. In order was, let, me, let me ask you, was that the same uh, population of economists? Uh, was that the same group of economists or a, a random survey? Oh, both of them were random surveys of all economists in the nation. Uh, but ours included, in addition to the group that was surveyed by the initial survey, we included three other groups as well. In addition to what is called the American Economics Association, 4,500 economists that represent the mainstream, typically, of the economics profession, we also included a group of national business economists, a group of government economists, a group of teachers who taught principles courses of economics, and we wanted them because they were our target audience for our textbook. And then finally, we included a group of non-traditional economists called evolutionary economists or institutional economists. So our group included all the ones that had been surveyed before plus three, uh, four additional groups. And the, the net result of it was that we showed that the original survey was, was, with, was upheld. That is to say that the traditional mainstream orthodox economists continued to have substantial agreement on uh, a large portion of the questions in our survey. Um, these, these are the questions that dealt with how the markets work, how the microeconomy works. But we, what we discovered, not so much to our surprise, I guess, was that after the experience of the Carter administration and the Reagan-Bush years, which had included massive inflations and two depressions in the 1980s, one of which we are just coming out of now, or two recessions, I should say, the economists were no longer showing such a high degree of consensus on how the economy works at the macro level. That is, what causes unemployment, what causes inflation, the role of deficits, the role of, of federal um, trade deficits, and so on. The consensus had broken down. We um, also 
let, let me let me interrupt you here if I can for just a second since we're we are moving along in our time and we have a lot of topics to discuss if we could get into how this survey relates to the elected representatives uh, to the two parties conventions this past summer okay um, it's very straightforward um, what we what we discovered over the sequence of several surveys is that is that um, teachers didn't listen to the economists they learned studied from in school, they, they listened to the journalists. We also expected that politicians listened more to journalists than they did to economists. We couldn't poll econ or politicians directly because they don't respond to surveys, so we took the next best thing, the people that elect them, or at least the people that put them on the ballot. So what we wanted to find out was whether or not politicians, as represented by the delegates to the national convention, who they were listening to, who did they agree with, did they agree with economists. So we sent the same set of questions that we had originally sent in 1975 and then again in 1990 to economists. We then sent that same set of questions to um, our closest proxy for the United States Congress. Well, how then uh, did you determine the results? What answers did you find? What we found was just strikingly interesting, we believe. Um, the difference between Republicans and Democrats and their basic beliefs um, come out in question after question, and, and after I'm done, you can, we can talk about some specific ones. But we also discovered that, not surprisingly, Republicans tended to agree with economists on how markets work, but Democrats tended to agree with economists on the macroeconomy, unemployment, inflation, and so on. The split was remarkable. Um, business people agree with economists on business-type questions. Democrats and representatives of, of the broad democratic spectrum, working-class people and so on, tended to agree more with an activist um, feeling among economists that the government has a responsibility to help people find jobs, the government has a responsibility to uh, uh, get involved in the economy, just the opposite of the Bush administration. So essentially, you're um, grouping all Democrats together, even though there's a fairly wide uh, split between progressive Democrats and conservative Democrats. Surprisingly, the split that you mentioned doesn't show up. We, uh, because this was a random sample, and we have no reason to, in fact, we've tested to see whether or not there was sampling bias, which just means, do we get a representative response back from, from both these groups? Um, the wide variety of opinions in the Democratic Party don't show up. That is to say, we get uh, very many questions where a vast majority of the Democrats agree with each other on their responses, and similarly, by the way, the Republicans. They just don't agree with each other. Well, I noticed that on the personal background of the uh, survey, the part that I filled out, you ask the state, uh, the gender, the age, the ethnicity, and education. Right. You don't get into any self-characterization of a progressive liberal conservative. No, we, and we specifically avoid that kind of a question because if people thought that's what we were searching for, then that would bias their responses because they would, they would try to outguess the questionnaire. And so we didn't, we didn't ask those questions, although it is possible from the responses we got to so characterize people. Well, what I found interesting in looking at the responses were the agreement between uh, the Republicans and the Democrats 
on um, one of the, well, I'm not sure where it is in the order, but the, uh, the question is, uh, do you agree, have no opinion, or disagree uh, that large balance of trade deficits have an adverse effect on the economy? And both the Republicans and the Democrats were uh, over 80% in agreement. That's right. Now, in fact, that's one of many questions. Let me share some others that are like that. On the trade deficit, uh, they do agree that uh, uh, the trade deficit is primarily due to the inability of U.S. firms to compete, for example. But on this question, they're very far away from the economists, where the majority of economists disagree with that proposition. Another one that's very similar to it, um, a large balance of trade deficit has adverse effects on the economy. This is the one you referred to. 81 or 85 percent of Republicans and Democrats agreed, but only 26 percent of economists did. This is one of those questions that, uh, when, as we do our, our analysis further, we'll discover that journalists, newspaper journalists, business journalists, Wall Street Journal writers, Business Week writers, and your local newspaper will tend to agree with the GOP and the Democrats and disagree with the economists. And that, of course, is what I said earlier. That's one of the things we're trying to find out. Where are these people forming their opinions if they're not getting them from professional economists? Let me take a moment here and uh, tell our listeners that you are listening to Government Politics and Ideas. My name is Barry Vogel. My guest this week is Dr. Richard M. Alston, the chairman of the Economics Department of Weber State University in Ogden, Utah. And we're discussing a survey that he and his co-authors sent to a random sampling of the delegates to the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention that was, were held in July and August of 1992. Dr. Alston, another surprisingly equal comparison in looking at the answers to the survey is almost a 90% agreement um, for both the Republicans and the Democrats that a large federal budget deficit has an adverse effect on the economy. Can you comment about the agreement uh, on that and on the other one that we just mentioned concerning the trade deficit? Sure. On that question, um, uh, the, the Republicans and the Democrats, I think, reflect the, the general uh, popular view and the one certainly that's advocated in the newspapers, that tra the deficit in the national debt. Uh, deficit is currently running at uh, $300 billion, the total debt over $4 trillion is a bad thing for the economy. As it turns out, however, economists have no consensus with respect to that. There's simply no agreement among economists that large federal deficits have an adverse effect on the economy. Well, let's move, if we can, to some of the areas of disagreement. And, and the ones that uh, stand out clearly to me uh, are the following, one dealing with health care and one dealing with educational reform. The health care question says, the provision of health care is generally better left to market-oriented solutions rather than a Canadian style of government programs. And 85% um, of the Republicans agree with that. 8% of the Democrats agree with that. Uh, whereas 6% of the Republicans disagree and almost 80% of the Democrats agree. Uh, that combined with almost an equal percentage of agreement and disagreement along party lines to the educational voucher system um, 
being likely to worsen the inequality in the distribution of educational resources and opportunity in uh, student performance seems very striking to me, and I would be interested in your responses, your commentary. Well, they were striking to me as well, although not so surprising. Um, what we see in those two questions are the, what I consider to be the basic fundamental difference between Democrats and Republicans. Republicans hold um, a very strong view of the efficacy of the market. That is, that, that free enterprise, unfettered business decision-making, individuals pursuing their own self-interest, will better guide resources and do so more efficiently. Democrats, on the other hand, tend to believe that the government should play an active role in the economy and, and can improve upon the, markets, the market outcome by providing incentives, tax incentives, penalties, um, even, even imprisonment for failure to perform in accordance with government mandates. This, this was characterized in the debates by... Uh, President Bush, when he he used the term tax and spend, tax and spend, but that's really not what Clinton was talking about. Clinton represents people who believe that the government has an obligation to fix things when they see things wrong. Republicans, Bush included in this case, tend to believe that if you leave the economy alone, the markets will find the solution that is best suited to the individual interests of the people that make up that society. I think this is just the fundamental difference between Democrats and Republicans. Well, from your perspective, a person who has been in uh, the, uh, I, I'm, I guess you would characterize it, in the study of economy, economics uh, since uh, you received a doctorate in 1968, uh, what sense do you make out of all of this? Well, if you, if you keep in mind that we've surveyed economists, we've surveyed teachers in the public schools, we've surveyed journalists, we've surveyed politicians, we've surveyed graduate students to find out whether or not they believe what their professors believe and that sort of thing. What it leads me to, to conclude is that economics and the study of economics is an extremely complex uh, thing, like philosophy, like history. And as much as not, you can predict the, the side on which people will come down on, on a wide variety of issues, such as you've, you've described out of our survey, not so much based on their training and their role as an analyst, but as advocates for ideological positions. That is to say, people who tend to be liberal tend to find them, their economic analysis lead them to liberal government intervention activist role. People, on the other hand, who tend to be individualistic, conservative, Republican, find that their economic analysis leads them to conclude that the government should stay out of the system and let markets work. And it's interesting that I read, I read constantly, and there is plenty of evidence to justify both positions, because the evidence is gathered in a way biased by the initial ideological position of the, of the researcher or the journalist or the teacher or the Republican Democrat, so that I don't see economists as any different. They tend to be advocates as opposed to analysts. Well, then let me
me, uh, if I may, move our discussion to a topic that's of great concern here in Northwestern California, and that is uh, forest practices and the issue of sustained yield and the time that it should take, if any time, uh, to move from the transition of uh, the established timber gap, in other words, cutting trees uh, fast, at a rate faster than they will reproduce or grow, versus uh, an immediate sustained yield. And do you have any information or any ideas about that issue that you were able to obtain from this survey or perhaps other work that you've done uh, similar to this survey? Well, it, my answer is not going to be based on this survey, although I've done other surveys that I can base the answer on. Um, uh, as, as you and I discussed during the, the period prior to this, I've, my primary career is in forestry and forest economics. Uh, I'm an expert in the area of sustained yield and the history of sustained yield, so let me answer your question based on my experience in that regard. Fine. Um, first, first, I need to clarify a point, and that is this. There is no agreed-upon definition of what we mean by sustained yield. Sustained yield has meant everything from protection of the health and beauty and productivity of ecosystems to I hear coming from you, a cut one, plant one scheme of timber harvesting or a relatively even flow of forest outputs or a balance between uh, private and public timber harvest. All of those things have been referred to as sustained yield. Well, let me, uh, let me try and give us a, a definition for purposes of what we're talking about now. And it seems to me that if we're going to cut down the trees faster than they are going to grow, uh, it's go there's going to be a, a long period of time 30 years for purposes of discussion, that it will take for the trees to grow back, during which time there will not be any that we can cut. So consequently, we have to slow down the rate at which we're cutting. Right. Okay. Given that definition, well, I am on record in many public and, and uh, professional forums arguing the following, that it is the obligation of the public of the United States to inform those communities that are in Northern California that are timber-dependent communities, that the name of the game has changed, that we're no longer going to allow um, harvest at rates that exceed sustainable levels. And having given that notice, that the time to stop the overcutting or the, the creation of the gap is now. Um, we've been, we meaning the Forest Service, we meaning the environmentalists that have been speaking, we meaning the timber interests, of the Pacific Northwest and elsewhere have long recognized that we can't continue to cut at the rates that we've been cutting. And particularly the Forest Service can't allow its forests to be cut in all the regions of the country except yours at uh, rates that make them lose money. And they have low cost sales everywhere else in the country except the Pacific Northwest and Northern California. So the time to stop is now and let those forests recover, um, start then should the government play in doing this? In the short run, what the government must do, it must do it not only in the case of timber, but in, in uh, the military sector that is also being cut back. It means huge numbers of jobs, and communities dependent upon those jobs are going to be impacted. Large-scale training has to take place. 
who can come in and deal with the trauma of people who have to face the fact, as many people in this country and the world have faced, that their jobs have become no longer valued, that their jobs are, are threatened, and that they, like the rest of the nation, may have to change jobs. In fact, nowadays we expect people who have to change jobs up to 10 times in their lifetime. The government has an obligation to go in and help people make that transition, to guide resources into those communities so that they can use the resources for productive purposes, not just in the sense of, of attracting tourists or anything like that, but bring in new, viable trade and production that will work in a world economy. Well, I realize my next question is going to uh, perhaps be the subject of a future conversation between us, uh, but the question is, how do we persuade the government to do that? Well, I think the persuasion took place on November 6th when we had an election. I guess it was November 7th. Um, it was necessary to convince the Bush administration that it, it had a responsibility because they, like the Republicans and the people who responded to our survey, basically believed that the government played a limited role and that the economy would take care of itself, including local economies that if the local economy lost its jobs, then people would move and regain capital would move and there would be um, automatic adjustments. Under the Clinton administration, and particularly with his economic advisors, uh, they don't have to be convinced. They know as Democrats that they're responsible for helping economies, local regional economies, make the transition into a world economy and they, and they will do it with a vengeance. Maybe not the first hundred days of Roosevelt years, but certainly the first um, 14 to 16 months of the, or the Clinton administration will be an activist one. They don't need the convincing. Well, then it would seem to me that in doing so, uh, we, we stand uh, the risk of increasing the budget deficit. There's no question about that. Under this administration, for the first year or so, the budget deficit isn't going to increase. Remember that in our survey, we discovered that while Democrats and Republicans and lay people think that that is a big deal, economists don't. At least the majority of economists don't. Well, Dr. Richard M. Alston, I want to thank you very much for being here with us on government politics and ideas and look forward to talking with you again in the future. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Barry. In 1992, Richard Alston was the chairman of the economics department at Weber State University in Ogden, Utah, and he sent a political survey to the delegates of the Democratic and Republican National Conventions that were held that year. He inquired about the perceptions of convention delegates regarding economic issues in the United States. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 
1-800-273-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.